Bienvenidos a todos los pescadores que hay. Les invitamos a escuchar nuestro programa de pescar en Rod and Real Radio, en Canal 540 Radio Sion, con sus huéspedes John Hopalong Cassidy, Stan Vanderberg y Wendy Toshihara. Now it's time for Rod and Reel Radio with your hosts, Hopalong John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all-around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, this is the show for you. Rod and Reel Radio brought to you by El Cajon Ford at Broadway and Main or online at ElCajonFord.com. Whether it's time for a new or used car or truck or you need to take advantage of San Diego's best, Quick Lane for service with genuine Ford parts, brand name tires at competitive prices. Remember, nobody beats Alcohol Ford. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Reel Radio, the best stop on your radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. Thank you, Mark Larson, and and welcome, everyone, back to Rod and Reel Radio. I am your underfished host, Hopalong John Cassidy, and we welcome you to our Christmas edition. Really appreciate you tuning in tonight. Now, Stan, Wendy, and myself, for that matter, we're all off celebrating Christmas with families. And we know that you're probably at home or you're on the road and you're listening to Rod and Reel Radio hoping to find us. And we do have a great show for you tonight. Topping the list is going to be Mr. Bill Milton. He is the lead engineer for the Port District. Bill is in charge of redoing the Shelter Island launch ramp. We're going to go through all the ifs, ands, and buts on what's going to be happening at the Shelter Island launch ramp. It'll be closing the day after the San Diego Bay Bass Tournament. And I think that'll it, that's going to be January uh, the 22nd. So you're going to want to hear about that. And then later on for you freshwater guys, we have a recording that we did a few months ago with Mr. Rick Clun. And Rick is the oldest pro bass fisherman to ever win a BASS tournament. He is a legend in the bass fishing community. We're going to catch up with Rick and at 70 years old, find out exactly how he did that. And then to end off the show, Hey, you worry about your seafood, you worry about the stocks of sustainable fish that are in our oceans. We've got Mr. Tommy Gones from Catalina Offshore Products with us, and he's going to clue us in on what's happening with the local seafood we're eating, what's good, what's not, and what you should be doing. So Tommy Gomes will be with us on the show. So we ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy the show Ben Harvey has put together for you. I'll be with you at the end of the show tonight. So, Ben, if you will, take it away. Hey, Wendy, let's get on to our first guest because we have him on for a limited time. He's uh, he's kind of uh, uh, wedging us in between a few other things that he's doing on this Sunday night. He is a lead engineer for the Port of San Diego when it comes to the Shelter Island Boat Ramp uh, Improvement Project. Let's introduce our listening uh, audience to Mr. Bill Melton. And, Bill, welcome to Rod and Reel Radio. Well, thank you, John. Glad to be here. Hey, you know, I can't tell you how happy I am that to be able to talk to you and talk a little bit about the Shelter Island launch ramp. You know, the Shelter Island launch ramp, for most people that fish out of Southern California, it just seems like it's something that has been there 
forever. It's one of the busiest launch ramps uh, when it comes to launching into the Pacific Ocean in California. It's reported to have something like 50,000 launches a year. You know, it's been there forever, but can you tell us, before we get into what's going to be happening with the launch ramp here in the future, can you give us a little history about the launch ramp itself? I sure will. No, the, the, uh, I want to say thanks to the California Department of uh, Parks and Recreation, the Division of Boating and Waterways. They're the ones that's funding this, them plus the Wildlife Conservation Board. The, um, the boat launch was originally built right around 1956. It was updated to what is what's there right now in 77. That is, we put in a 10-lane ramp plus the jetty that protects it. And that's, that's, uh, that's really the history of it. If we studied the, the ramp for this project, and that's where the 50,000 launches per year came around, we, uh, we had somebody out there for several times for several they came at different periods of time during um, about a two- or three-year stretch and counted the boats and determined that there was 50,000 launches per year. And that, when I told that to the Division of Boating and Waterways, they said that it was the busiest boat launch in California. Wow. You know, wow. And, and we do want to thank the uh, uh, California Parks Department of uh, uh, Boating and Waterways. They all are, they are in part a sponsor of Ron Real Radio. And a lot of people sit there and they go, where is my tax money, especially my fuel tax money, going? What is it funding? It seems like we never see it. This is a major example of one of the prime projects that, in part, is being funded by the Department of Boating and, and Waterways. And obviously, uh, it's a big project. But, you know, to give us kind of a scope of this project, uh, Bill, how long has it been since you first started recognizing there was a need to do something with the project and then working on the engineering for what might be done to improve the facility? Well, we actually started studying this back in nineteen in two thousand, and the engineer at that time was Jim Treffer. And we've gone through about five different project managers on this project simply because it's taken a while. And, and projects like this, um, they take a while because they have such involvement with the state, uh, like like I was saying, the, the Parks and Recreation Department and the public. So what we started to do was simply maintain the the boat ramp itself because it is deteriorating it's a concrete structure it went in in 77 so it had a life of about 25 or 30 years and so when it came time to maintenance it we applied for a grant and the and the uh, the state gave us the grant and said uh, we want you to move forward with a design while you do reach out to the public and find out what the problems are that they see and so what the public came back uh, with and this was after several meetings, and it took years during design and public outreach. They wanted a wider entrance, and that's for visibility in and out of the basin. They wanted more maneuvering area inside the basin. They basically wanted it to be a, a bigger uh, basin itself, and then they wanted more docking space. So that's that's when the uh, the uh, parks department said, "Well, let's not just." replace the ramp, let's go ahead and redesign the whole facility. And so we went into redesign the whole facility 
and that's where we're at today. We're, we have completed that design, and we're getting ready to go into construction. Well, what a lot of people may not realize is that you just can't come up with a plan to the Port District, get the money together, and go, okay, let's go out and do that. There is almost an infinite amount of special permits and uh, environmental uh, impact reports and other things that have to be satisfied before you can even turn over the first rock over there. You want to? Can you go into some of the some detail? Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, you know real laborious about some of the hurdles that you had to get over before you finally got the okay to go ahead with this project. Well, once we once we nailed down exactly what it was we wanted to to do with the boat ramp, we had to go through the basic uh, California Environmental Quality Act study that's called CEQA, and also said every project that of this size that uh, goes into the port has to go through a, what's called a master plan, a port master plan amendment. And so those two items, the CEQA and the port master plan amendment, was rolled up into one uh, study, and and it that was called a Wound, out, wound up being a mitigated dec- negative declaration. Now, these are a lot of uh, technical jargon I understand. Basically, what that means is we go out and study the, the impacts that this project will have to the area. That is, the traffic impacts, the um, biological impacts, and, and if there are impacts, which there would be, there's mitigation measures we're going to take in order to uh, minimize or eliminate those impacts, and that's what those studies were all about. And those studies took um, many years just because of the volumes of information you have to gather. And they've been completed and were certified back in November of this year. The next hurdle, or maybe I shouldn't call it a hurdle, but the next permit you have to get is a coastal development permit. And that was approved. And finally, and I say finally because it just takes a while to get this through the system. It was approved, I believe it was uh, June of this year. And then we go through and have a, the California Regional Water Quality Control Board. We simply call it the Water Board Permit. And we also have an Army Corps of Engineer Permit. And we're anticipating the Army Corps Permit to be completed about the 24th of this month, so it's right around the corner. As soon as that permit is completed, then we can finalize our, our plans and specifications and put them out to bid. Does that give you a little idea of the kind of permits that we need? Well, you know, you know, Bill, I can understand now why there have been five project engineers in the life of this improvement project. You just plain wear them out and, you know, and have to find a new one. That's totally incredible, and I don't think any of our listeners listening even have an idea of what has to be done before the first rock is turned over. Now, I'm going to go uh, under the assumption that most of the people that uh, are listening to the show have been to the Shelter Island uh, uh, launch ramp uh, once in the past 30 years or so. They they know what it's all about. Can you basically tell us what some of the improvements are going to be and and try and and uh, give us a verbal picture as much as you can on on what's going to be replacing what and what's going to happen? Oh, sure. And I also want to invite the public to our open house. It's going to be this Thursday, the 17th, at the Port of San Diego Administration Building. And it will be from 530 to 7. And what we're going to do is set up displays. 
and have the project team there answering questions to the public. It's not going to be a a, a, a um, forum where somebody stands and talks to the public. It's going to be just a, like a open house where we're going to mingle with everyone and just and and give them an idea of what the benefits of the project is going to be, what its schedule is going to be, what its scope is going to be, and we'll have pictures and renderings of it so people can look at it. So the scope of the project is, as you probably know, there's a jetty on the south side of the of the boat launch that protects the launch from the wakes in the bay. That jetty is going to be removed and replaced with a seawall, and the seawall is going to have a walkway on top of it. That's how we're going to push the basin out and give it more maneuvering area because instead of the rock jetties, it will simply have a seawall. On the interior of the basin, we're removing the, we're replacing the ramp with a new ramp, and it will still be the same tin lane width ramp. It's just going to be new, so the deteriorated concrete won't, will no longer be there. And we're also putting in new dock spaces. Now the docks are going to ring the the perimeter of the basin. So instead of the right now, I think we have about 120 feet of dock space. We're going to have nearly 500 feet of dock space when we're finished. So we are increasing the interior of the basin by something in the order of 80%, and we're increasing the, the uh, docking length by something like 300%. So it's a huge improvement, and we're staying within the same footprint of the basin. Yeah, Bill, Wendy's got a question. Uh, Wendy? I see, I've seen the rendering, and I really like the design. You know, the, it would be entrance when you come in um, from the water from the bay is in the middle instead of on the left side now. Um and there's uh, a lot more room, I mean, especially, you know, because of the Bay Bass Tournament, you know, all those people trying to get in and out, um, even turning around. I, it, it's Gosh, it's going to be such an improvement. I can't wait. Yeah, Bill, you had to get a variance uh, on that opening, too. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, the opening, one of the things the public wanted was a wider opening. The existing opening is about 25 feet, and when it gets down a little tight, it may be even narrower than that, so it gets pretty congested. The average boat that's out there is about 22 feet long. So um, the, the the state has guidelines for the width of openings for uh, basins like this, and that's 75 feet. However, when you make it that wide, it doesn't protect it as well. And so we, we asked the state if we could narrow it down to 60 feet, and, and they agreed. So it's, it's still wider than what their guidelines were make it a little bit wider than two lengths of the average boat that's in there. So it meets their minimum guideline. You know, Bill, one of the things that, that people are going to probably scratch their head and, and uh, question about is they, they, they look at the footprint of the old ramp, they look at the footprint of the new ramp, and they go, why the heck didn't you push that thing out, you know, width-wise and length-wise, more out into the bay? And, and there's a good reason why you didn't do that. Yeah, there is. The the uh, the bay has part state lands, and it's also got uh, shipping lanes in it, and it really dives deep. As you get out of the basin, it's uh, you know this, this is engineering language, so and, and I'm sure a lot of people can understand it. So, but please bear with me. The basin is at a minus eight uh, elevation, and as you get outside the basin, it dives down to a minus fifty foot elevation pretty quickly, and so we did. In order, the farther you move out into the into the um, bay, not only do you start encroaching on into state lands and encroaching into 
the shipping lanes, you also start making the project just immensely more expensive because the walls have to be a whole lot taller to reach the bottom of the bay. All right. Hey, we are speaking with Mr. Bill Melton. He is the from the Port of San Diego and the lead engineer on the Shelter Island Boat Ramp Improvement Project. Bill, we got to take a break right now. Is there any way we can uh, get you to stay on for just a little bit longer? You sh- sure can. I've got, I've got another 10 minutes I think I can spend with you. I appreciate the, the opportunity to let the public know about this. All right. Hey, you're listening to Rod and Reel Radio on AM 540 or uh, live at com. Wendy and I will be back after these messages. can count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect. Finally, a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main at El Cajon, or online anytime, anywhere at ElCajonFord.com. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. If the fish are biting, I'm on my boat, rain or shine. Of course, I wear my life jacket. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Clip it on, grab my tackle box, and hit the water. Love California, boat California, save California. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. H&M Landing is the most diversified sport fishing company on the West Coast. Serving the angling community since 1935, H&M Landing's name recognition and reputation for customer service is the best in the business. The H&M fleet provides the widest range of trip options and boasts the coast's largest open party fleet. For ocean fishing any time of the year, H&M Landing should be your choice for nearshore and offshore fishing. H&M is San Diego's most experienced sport fishing company, offering the best in half-day, three-quarter day, full, and multi-day trips, and a complete schedule of long-range adventures. Call today, HM Landing, 619-222-1144, or visit their website at www.hmlanding.com for updated schedules and secure online booking. H&M Landing, the experienced angler's first choice in local and multi-day fishing since 1935. That's H&M Landing at 619-222-1144 or hmlanding.com. 2015 and 16, Quantum Fishing's gone and done it again for you with the brand new redesigned Smoke PT Reel Series. Everything from your spinning reels all the way to your baitcasters, the PTA design has a new PTXA frame, lighter, stronger, bone-crushing drag, Quantum Fishing. We are performance-tuned. Check them out at Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa or anglersarsenal.com or give us a call at 619-466-8355. 
Hey, Wendy and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio, and we have with us tonight a special guest, Mr. Bill Melton. He is from the Port of San Diego and is the lead engineer for the Shelter Island Boat Ramp Improvement Project that's going to be happening here real soon. And, you know, I, Bill, I had a, a, a certain, you know, order that I wanted to put things in, and I've got to tell you my uh, message uh, – uh, have been lighting up. Everyone wants to know what's the time schedule for this. So I'm going to go out of order here just a little bit. And can you tell us exactly uh, what's the time frame from the time that uh, the ramp's going to be closed to when you anticipate it'll be reopened? And what is the projection that what's going to be happening with regards to launching in that interim? Sure, that's that's actually very good. My, my, what I'd like to let people know is that this is a six to ten month project, and it will need to be closed for part of that time, mainly for safety. As you can imagine, there's going to be large equipment uh, moving around because we are removing the rock jetties with there'll be cranes and barges and trucks, and so. We are not going to interfere with the bass tournament in January. We're going to wait till that's completed, and we're planning on early in in late February, excuse me, going into construction. I plan on going to the board to get a contractor approved in early February, and then we're off to the races at that point. We um, will be uh, closing the ramp down at the end of February and going into full construction mode, and then towards summer, we're going to be, um, and, and honestly, I'd like to be able to just keep it closed to get it completed and then open it up. However, it's very important to allow the public to have access, so we're going to let let one ramp stay open from Memorial Day through Labor Day, and then we're going to close it up and then uh, complete the project and move on. So the project should be completed about 10 months after it starts, which is right around November to December of 2018. Then we'll have a nice new facility. And we're really talking about limited access because, as I understand it, if you have one ramp, what's going to happen is uh, the boat and its vehicle or whatever's launching there is going to have to pull up, back out, launch, and then instead of pulling out and going out left and going through there, they're going to have to go back the way that they came in and the next boat's going to have to wait for them to clear before they can gain access to the ramp. Is is that a fair assumption? That's exactly right. Right now, it has uh, it has a big circle type of a driveway where you pull in one side; it's one way, and, and you launch your ramp and you leave the other side. When construction's going on, that's going to be demolished because they're building a new ramp, and there'll be a big sheet pile coffer dam that's going to be blocking it there will be one 15-foot-wide lane open. And and so what we're going to do to try to mitigate this impact is just direct people to the other ramps in the area. We have a ramp down at Chula Vista, National City, Coronado. Mission Bay has a couple of ramps, and there's even a ramp up in Oceanside. So there's there are alternatives that are that um, I, I would direct folks to, to use if they can, uh, if they can do so. All right. Hey, let's go over quickly just some of the, the points here that, that people always ask about when looking at the ramp. Number one, there is all that beautiful rock that forms the jetty that's been there since, uh, you know, the early 50s. 
what's going to happen to uh, uh, that rock jetty and all the material that it's made up of? Well, we're going to use reuse as much of that rock revetment as we can on site. We have revetment that has to go inside the basin to protect the the uh, ramp itself, and then we're going to be filling in around the outside of a new wall to help stop scour. Uh, so we'll be reusing as much as we can, and then what we don't use, we're going to haul off site to uh, to go to a landfill. Now. I, I must say that when it goes to this landfill, um, this is going to be nice rock, so it can be reused. It'll be up to the landfill to determine what exactly you want to. Now, while, while I'm at it, I'd like to, uh, to let folks know that we do have a website. It's uh, portofsandiego.org forward slash S-I-B-L. And you can go there to answer your questions and get updates on the project at any time. And uh, once we get started, we'll have a, a timeline Posted so people can see what's going on, and we'll also let people know if the if the ramp is open or if it's closed. All right, and uh, just one more note on the rock. A lot of people say, "Well, why can't you just take it and barge it out to the ocean and lay it down as 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 a reef, so we can have more fishing habitat?" Because anyone that's fished off of Coronado and Imperial Beach know that that uh, that bottom is flatter than your Aunt Tilly in most places. So. Uh, uh, what's the reasoning uh, behind that, Bill? Well, that's a good question, and I'm really glad you asked because that that question comes up a lot. The in, in California, any project has to go through an environmental process, and so we cannot just take uh, and and go and create an artificial reef somewhere without having a project. And that project has to go through the California Environmental Quality Act review, CEQA, to determine if it's to determine if it has impacts and to mitigate those impacts, just like this this project did. And that would take probably one to two years of environmental study just to get through that process. And so if somebody has a, a project that they need revetment, uh, we are not uh, stuck where we're at. Right now we have a solid plan. Uh, the, the CEQA analysis requires that we define exactly what we're going to do with the rocks we have. If we find a less impactful use for it, for instance, another permitted project, then come and see me, and we can see if we can accommodate that. All right. And uh, a couple of other questions real quick. Uh, You know, the technology in concrete has improved considerably since uh, uh, 1957 and uh, 1967, 1977. Is there going to be a... uh, a type of concrete that's going to be poured to create this ramp that is different than the concrete that was used in previous ramps. Mm, that's a good. That's a really good question. The the uh, this ramp was constructed in 1976, and the technologies have improved. We will be creating this in the dry. Uh, that's what a coffer dam is about. You we build a dam around the existing ramp pump the water out of it, and then demolish the ramp and build a new one. So it will be as as uh, as modern technology as there is will be put into building this ramp. All right. And uh, uh, when you do the improvement on the launch ramp, how about other things like uh, handicap parking, uh, the restrooms, uh, a more available, less available space? Uh, what's going to be happening there? Well, the scope of this project is to um, 
remove the jetties, put in a new seawall with a walkway, and the walkway is going to be six foot wide. So, so, and it will be sloped so slightly so that it will be ADA accessible, which is, I think, a very important item. We're we're going to improve the restrooms to the current ADA uh, requirements, which is actually they're pretty they're in pretty good shape that they are now. They just need a little bit of adjustments inside, and we're going to install a couple of uh, boat and tra- uh, truck and trailer length um, accessible stalls up near the restroom for those boaters that may need it. The uh, the rest of the parking is going to remain pretty much the same as it is. The the majority of the construction and, and the work is going to be actually on the boat ramp itself. So the scope includes the ramp, the the seawall, the jetties, and we will put in a, a um, concreted kayak drop-off area that's just on the south side of the ramp itself. Now, uh, I know that also while you were planning this, you were trying to look at alternative sites because just, you know, taking out of commission a a launch ramp that is launching almost a a thousand vehicles a month, that's a a pretty big hit. what uh, what have you come up with uh, that you can recommend that people do with regards to alternative launching areas? Well, during during construction, the uh, the ramps that will be open will be on J Street and Chula Vista at the J Street Marina, in National City at Pepper Park Marina, in uh, Coronado, uh, and then there's a couple in Mission Bay, and there's one up in Oceanside. And if you're military, there's also a ramp there in the uh, at MCRD, and there's a, a kayak type of ramp or a small ramp up by um, the uh, off the Nimitz Boulevard uh, uh, by the, uh, I, I can't recall the name of that shopping center. But I, I'd like to say while I have, while I have you on the line and, and I'm able to say it, I want everyone to know that the Port of San Diego staff and, and all of us there, we pride ourselves on giving back to the community that we serve. We, we are uh, performing this work to the best of our ability, and we, and we intend on um, providing a world-class facility when we're complete. We took uh, time to study it, got a lot of input from the, from the community, and uh, developed what I think is a really fine plan. Now, during that review, we did look at alternate ramp down at the um, south end of the uh, of the parking lot by the Valley High, and that that had was in cons. The but the end result was with the with the wake action. Um, it just was a better idea to to improve the current facility rather than to move the facility and the ramp down to the south end. Well, you know, and also again, we have to thank the California State Parks Department of Boating and Waterways. Uh, they're coming up with uh, over six million dollars for this project, which doesn't even be pay begin to pay for the whole project. But uh, it couldn't be done without them. It certainly could not. They they actually they came up with six point one million dollars, and then they brought in a partner, the Wildlife Conservation Board, and and they thought that this met. Uh, with their requirements, and so they're giving another $3.35 million. So all told, the state is is coming up with nine, almost $9.5 million to do this project. Now, Port of San Diego, with with our resources, uh, will be also providing funds for this project because it's 
um, that that's really the bare engineering and construction costs that, that we're coming up with. And there's a lot of other uh, soft costs that we have to deal with as well. So um, we are really, really blessed to have uh, the, the resources that we have to do this work. You know, Bill, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time that you spent. I know you're going to be having the open house. Can you please tell us again, for those people that might have been caught unaware of, when the open house is going to be, where it's going to be to view what's happening and talk to the actual people that are involved with this project, and then if people want to prepare themselves a little bit ahead of time to see what the project is all about, what it looks like, where can they go to get that information? Sure. So the the uh, the Port of San Diego administration building is, you know, I'm going to say the address, so if anybody's I'm giving you a second to go get your pens, it's at 3165 Pacific Highway, San Diego, California, 92101. It's on the corner of Sassafras Street and Pacific Highway, and it's that big square building that has the words Port of San Diego written on the side of it. You can see it from I-5 or from Pacific Highway. It's very, very obvious. On Thursday evening from 5.30 to 7, that's Thursday, November 17th, we'll be having a open house. And so please come and join us. Uh, we're setting up uh, projectors and uh, screens so that we can have slideshows and a projection of, of the renderings for the facility. And we'll have the whole team there that worked on it through the environmental and the structural and the, and, and the planning. Uh, we have right now my team or our team consists of probably 15 individuals that are working on it today. The, um, we've, we've had a, a history of people working on it depending on what phase it was in. Uh, our managers will be there. My manager, uh, Dirk Epperson, will be there to, to um, help out. He's really an excellent person to give information. And, um, and, and um, we're actually just looking forward to letting the public know. Now, the website we have is uh, at the, the the port's website is www.portofsandiego.org forward slash S-I-B-L. So you can go there for information, and there's also a link to send me an email to, or to send the project team an email, and we watch that email every day, and we do our best to respond to any questions within 24 hours. So please send us your questions. We'll be happy to answer them. You know, Bill, I was uh, one of the uh, thousands of freshwater fishermen that had to suffer through the closure of Lake San Vicente with the uh, water project that was there, but we were all also promised that there would be a great launch ramp and a brand-new facility for us to launch uh, from. That uh, lake was closed to us for eight years, but I've got to tell you, when it opened up, that facility is beautiful. And I can only liken it uh, to what's going to be happening here at Shelter Island. Yeah, there's going to be some inconvenience, and there's going to be times when the ramp is not going to be accessible to us. But I think when the thing opens up and we start using it, we are going to be extremely thankful that it happened and thankful to the Port of San Diego that they took the money and the energy and the time to do this because it's a long time coming and it's really needed. Well, thank you. I, I completely agree. I, I am. I am. I and my whole team are really excited about this project. We want it to be world class. We want it to shine and bring people to the waterfront. That's what we. That's what we are there for. To try to build facilities. 
that draw people to the waterfront so that um, they can enjoy this beautiful place we call San Diego. And not only that, I know a lot of the fishermen that fish up and down the coast and launch in different areas, they also realize that when they come and launch at the Shelter Island launch ramp, it is totally free. There's no uh, charge to the fish there. And in this day and age, that's really uh, a unique thing. Yeah, there is no charge, and, and there are no plans to charge for launching at the Shelter Island boat launch. And there's uh, one thing I'd like to say, uh, there is no fishing there. And, and uh, with regard to construction, uh, occasionally folks will come in and dump their bait in or around the, the boat launch, and I'd like to ask everybody to please do not do that. We're going to start a public outreach, part of our public outreach, to, to slow that activity down. And the reason is because there's some sea lions that love to come around and, and uh, eat that bait. And what happens during construction when the sea lions come in, we have to stop construction and wait for them to swim away. And wow. so that will slow down our construction. So uh, well, I'd appreciate it if everybody would keep that under consideration and just try not to feed the sea lions. All right. Uh, Bill, if we can, uh, if you will allow us for us to check with you from time to time to see how the project is going, just like we did at San Vicente, always uh, appreciate hearing from you. And I hope that uh, you will respond and, and come to us to, to give us updates, uh, the, the pros and cons of, of what's happening. And Wendy and I and our listeners, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Wendy. I appreciate it, and thanks again to the California State Parks Department, the Division of Boating and Waterways, and the Wildlife Conservation Board for making this all possible. All right. So uh, I hope you have a good night. All right. Amber Marine has been servicing boats and outboard motors for more than 30 years in the Newport Harbor area. They're a factory-authorized dealer for Tohatsu and Nissan outboards and also provide factory-authorized repair and service for all types of marine outboards. Located near the corner of 17th and Placentia Avenue, Amber Marine is at 786 Newton Way in Costa Mesa. Affordable boating and repair since 1982. 949-646-6918 and on the web at ambermarine.net. Anglers Arsenal is the serious angler's first choice for hand-poured plastics. McCoy line, Spro products, Gamakatsu hooks, G. Loomis fishing rods, Shimano products, Ovid reels, and just about anything you hear advertised on Rod and Reel Radio. Go to anglersarsenal.com and visit our online tackle store. See the huge selection of western plastics hand-poured baits, all at anglersarsenal.com. Angler's Arsenal Tackle Store is conveniently located in La Mesa, just off Interstate 8. Give us a call at 1-800-428-8730. If you're serious about your fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top angler-tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value. Iserline will replace or repair at their option. No questions asked if you're not pleased with any of their products. Catch what you've been missing. Quality guaranteed. (laughs) 
Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ring hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. If the fish are biting, I'm on my boat, rain or shine. Of course, I wear my life jacket. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Clip it on, grab my tackle box, and hit the water. Love California, boat California, save California. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. This portion of Rod and Reel Radio is brought to you by the Rockley's Fish Release System. Now you can quickly and easily release fish suffering from barotrauma back to the depths they were caught. Look or ask for the Rockley's at your local fishing tackle dealer. You know, our next guest has been a hero to bass fishermen for longer than we can remember. He was and is the Bassmaster Classic Champion in 1976, 77, 1984, and 1990. He was the 1988 BASS Angler of the Year. He's qualified for 28 consecutive Bassmaster Classic Championships. And just last week, he won his 15th Tour Championship on the St. John's River and the Bassmaster Elite Series. The guy we are pleasured to have here on the show, Mr. Rick Clone. Rick, welcome to Ron Real Radio. Thank you. I I can't tell you what a privilege it is to to have you and speak to you. We've had the opportunity to speak a lot of times when you're fishing out here in the West. Uh, Man, Rick, it seems like you have been fishing forever and you have been competitive for that long, too. But tell us about some of the early days of fishing, how you got involved, and and how you got involved especially in pro fishing and what it was like uh, then compared to now. Well, yeah, now it's, I guess it's been about as long a road as anyone currently fishing has been on. I uh, actually caught my first bass on an artificial lure, and now looking back, I didn't really catch it. It caught me because I've been chasing them ever since. But I caught it at Pine Lake in California. My grand, my mom's side of the family was living in Fresno. I actually was born in just outside of Fresno back then in a little place called Raisin City. And uh, But we were back visiting them, and... Uh, my dad didn't have enough room in the boat, and I kind of got upset, so he gave me his favorite rod and, and had a red and white Lucky 13 tied on it and said, just fish on around the bank here, and I'll come back and pick you up, and we'll all go out fishing. We'll make a long story short. They uh, they went out, and I was walking the bank, and finally, like most kids, got bored, but the, I'd thrown the bait out there, and all of a sudden I heard this explosion, and I looked up in time just to see this green fish with gills flared and this red and white lure sitting on his nose coming out of the water, and it, I didn't even reel. It scared me so bad, I just took off running and drug the poor fish out on the bank, and it came off about two feet out of the water, started flopping back toward the bank, and I looked like this NFL linebacker flying through the air after a fumbled football, landed on top of the poor fish, and from that point on, I've kind of been chasing fish ever since, and I was about six years old at that point in time. Holy mackerel. Well, what, uh, tell us a little bit about how you evolved into a pro angler, and it, did that develop out here in the West, or did you have to go back East and hone that trade? 
Well, no, my parents. After I was born, we we moved to they moved to Texas. I was only three months old, and so I've lived in Texas most of my life. Now I live in Missouri for the last twenty years, but the first fifty years or so I was in Texas. And uh, we, my dad was my dad was you'll hear his name mentioned several times was an avid fisher and hunter, and he always took me with him, and we were always saltwater fishing or freshwater fishing, and and I'll never forget we were out on the. Galveston jetties in saltwater one time, and we were by ourselves, anchored, and we hooked these two redfish. And uh, and by the time we back then and still now, it, it was in saltwater all too often. The pattern was called the old bent rod pattern, and several boats were driving by saw us. And by the time we could try to land the fish, at least eight or nine boats pulled in on top of us and anchored, and both of our fish went into the anchors and and broke off. And my dad just went ballistic. I mean. He said, this is it. I'm never fishing saltwater ever again. And all the way back to the boat ramp in the boat, and then all the way from the ramp to home, I heard every cuss word that I'd ever known <laughs> in, in, in the history. <laughs> Some I didn't know existed. But uh, And about two weeks, three weeks after that, he said, hey, there's this brand-new lake called Sam Rayburn Reservoir up in East Texas. You know, we're pretty good fishermen. They say they're catching a lot of fish. And so we went up there, and we fished for two days and didn't get a bite. And uh, typical to most fishermen, we were about to head home at the boat ramp and uh, going through all the excuses why the fish weren't biting. The last thing you were going to do is blame yourself. But about that time, I heard this noise coming, and all these strange-looking little boats with front-end steering I'd never seen before. About eight of them pulled up to the bank, and they set up these scales, and they all had on the same blue-looking jumpsuit. And I had no clue. I said, what? But what caught my eye was that two of them, this was 15 fish limit days in Texas. Two of them pulled up, 15 fish limit, dragging them up to the scales on stringers. No live wells back then. And uh, I just said, and we'd just gone through all the reasons the fish weren't biting. So obviously you had to kind of choke that down. And But I just got, became fascinated. How did they catch those fish? And it ended up being a bass club called the Pasadena Bass Club, which was only at that time about 15, 20 miles from where I lived. They invited me to join the club. I did. That's what introduced me to competition, and I loved it. I loved the learning element of it, how it, how it speeds up your learning process more than just the, the, the winning of it. So that's kind of how I got in, went from recreational into competitive fishing. And then in March of 1974, I quit my job at Exxon Oil Company and decided I, I wanted to try it at the, at the national level, and that was BASS at that time. I'd done well in the state. I'd, I'd, I'd been second in the in the individual championship in the state of Texas, which there was over 1,200 anglers in that at that time. It was called the Texas, you know, top Texas uh, state bass championship, and so that gave me the confidence. I thought that I could compete, and and I, I made the classic my first year, and like you said, 28 straight years in a row before I missed one. My gosh! Now the first classic uh, uh, you won was in. 1976. Can you, can you still remember uh, that event and uh, you know the day when you were crowned uh, Bassmaster Champion? Yeah, I can. Uh, of course, the significance of it was really that I was broke at that time. Uh, I uh, didn't even have money to get to the classic. Uh, we'd lost our house. My wife and I both had good jobs. I had one at Exxon. She had one at Tenneco, and uh, we had lost. In short periods of time, we lost the house. The only way we moved into a small rent house, 
and uh, where I was trying to start a guide service, uh, which nobody knew who you were, so nobody was calling you. And um, But uh, that was my third classic, and to get to it, I had to hog my Browning automatic uh, deer rifle uh, because bass can bass would pay your whole way once you got to the city. Back then it was a secret tournament, and they we, we all had to meet in New Orleans, and then once you got 30,000 feet in the air, they'd tell you where you were going. And so I had to hock that deer rifle just to get to New Orleans, but once I got there, it was all paid for. And then, of course, then history takes over. I end up winning that event and uh, and then winning the next one and following year in 77. And then the guiding phone rang off the wall. Uh, people, everybody wanted to fish with me. Sponsors showed up. So it went from, it, I mean, it just went 360 as far as the financial side of it was, from broke to, you know, being, as an angler, being as in good a shape as anyone. You know, if you had not won that first event with the situation that you were in, do you think you would have kind of hung it up and said, you know what, eh, maybe uh, going for the security of a 9-to-5 job is uh, what I should be doing? Well, no, I don't. I know I knew that answer, and that was the scariest part of that time frame was because when I quit Exxon, I had gone to college enough to know that in small business administration, they said, you know, you've got any new business, you should give it at least three years before you make a definitive decision. And that's what I basically told myself when I quit my job at Exxon. I was going to give this three years, and then I could always go back to systems and computing work. That's what I was doing. I was working in the second largest computing center in the world at that time. Only NASA was bigger. And so it, I was in the up-and-coming industry. So I felt, well, yeah, I'll go back to this, this. But even at my lowest point, I knew that was a lie. I mean, when I lost everything, really, the only money we had was what my wife was still making to put a little bit of food on the table and rent. A lot of the tournaments I went through, I had enough money to get the tournament, but if I didn't cash in the tournament, I didn't have enough to get back home. And so, but I, and under with that all going on, I knew that I would never go back. I knew that I was, somehow, some way, no matter what it was going to take, I was going to do it because this is what I, I loved. I, I knew, I mean, the, the freedom of it. There's nothing like all of a sudden, nobody can tell you when to take your vacation. Nobody can tell you when to take a coffee break. Nobody can tell you. I mean, you're now in complete control of your destiny. And uh, and that was that was so fascinating. Plus, I knew I was getting better. And uh, I knew I was learning, uh, you know, at a, at a rapid rate uh, because of my success of making the classics. I've been making them, you know, and I knew it was, I felt like it was just a matter of time. But uh, you know, who knows? You know, no, I wouldn't have quit. I don't know what, how we would have. Like I said, we had gotten, we'd lost the, the we've, we'd gotten out from our financial burden of mortgage and all that, the wrong way to do it, but I got out of it and was just paying a little $125 a month rent house on the lake. So we were going to survive, but it wasn't going to it'd just be by the skinny skin of our teeth. But fortunately, we didn't have to, to endure that longer than that first three years. Rick, uh, we'll be talking about your latest victory on the St. John's River here in, in just a little bit. But going back to 1976 when you won the Bassmaster Classic 1977, what what was the gear and the lures that you used at that time to be successful? Well, 
ironically, uh, it was a square bill. Was for I caught back then it was a ten fish limit, and I caught twenty seven fish in three days, and twenty twenty three of them. Let me see, get this right here. Seven, uh, twenty twenty two of them came on a little uh, square bill. And a lot of people think a square bill is just kind of a modern day bait. Uh, you know, after Kevin, I mean, it amazed me how many people after Kevin won the classic down in New Orleans won the square bill. Thought that this, that, hey, the square bill is kind of a new bait when it's been around forever. The reason it never went mainstream that most of them were homemade. They were balsa wood and they were homemade. They were hard to get. They were not very durable. They cost a lot. Even back in those time frames of sixties and seventies, they would still cost you twenty-five to fifty bucks a piece. And uh, and then again, they wouldn't last very long. It was only when you know I designed some lures for Lucky Craft and then Lucky Strike that we actually got some very good hard plastic square bills because. The industry was not successful at duplicating wood baits there for a long, long time. But uh, so that and but my five biggest came on a big spinner bait, which is still one of my favorite baits to fish. You know, one one of the U.S. Opens on a spinner bait, and uh, and it but my it only had five bites on it, but they were all my big ones. My you know, it was a seven fifteen, a six eight, a six four, uh, two two four and a half pounders. You know, but uh, so that was. Uh, the two lures, and it's, uh, and they still, those still lures still, you know, work well for me nowadays. Right. right. You know, uh, uh, it's just amazing. amazing. And, and the, even the boats you were working then, you know, we've got great electronics that people are using now. Were those boats set up with electronics at that time? Oh, yeah. They had, uh, you know, the very first classic was out in the off part of the country, uh, Lake Mead, that Bobby Murray sure. won. Now those were kind of a uh, kind of a strange one because they they were inboard outboards which never quite made it, but I know they were basically bass boats that had by then had live wells, you know had uh, decent depth finders on them, uh, you know they weren't the computer freaks of that depth finders are nowadays, but uh, still they were they did that got the job done they had good good quality troll motors they had all the essentials, uh, so no it was uh, uh, you know it was. An important tool, and it was a very good tool even back then. You know, back in uh, your first Bassmaster Classic that you won in uh, 1976, do you recall what the first place prize was for that? Mm, I think it was uh, 25000 Yeah. So that helped that, uh, you. That's like you said, you're going back a ways. Right. I know what I do know is that when a guy wins a Classic now, obviously he wins more than I have, than I won in all four. So, but, uh, you know, it's, I don't look at the money side of it as much as probably should have, but as much as some people do, uh, because I, you know, I, I just look at what an opportunity that I was fortunate to even have that opportunity. And, and back then, you know, uh, to make uh, even 10000 in a tournament, one tournament, was about a year's salary in anything else you were doing. We're speaking with uh, pro angler Rick Klon. Rick, we've got to take a break right now. Can we get you to stay on for another segment, please? Sure. All right. Hey, Wendy and I speaking with pro angler Rick Klon. Stay tuned. There's still more Rod and Reel Radio to come after these messages. Mm-hmm. 
You can count on El Cajon Ford, as so many Southern Californians have for years. El Cajon Ford has the cars and trucks you can count on, like the all-new Fusion and Escape, Edge, Explorers, and more. And now, Fiestas with 38 MPG and Focus with 40 miles per gallon highway, plus C-Max Energy with up to 42 highway EPA estimates. El Cajon Ford has them now. Shop online at ElCajonFord.com. Choose from hundreds of your favorite F-Series trucks, too. El Cajon Ford knows trucks, no matter what you're hauling or towing, for a great weekend of fishing or for some fun in the desert. Now get special savings on every F-Series truck in stock, 150s, 250s, 350s, at El Cajon Ford. We have commercial trucks, too, including the all-new Transit Connect. Finally, a commercial van with great mileage, helping your business get moving again. El Cajon Ford, worth the short drive from anywhere in Southern California, Broadway and East Main and El Cajon, or online anytime, anywhere at ElCajonFord.com. Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cabo San Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a bit set back with just what company to go with? Rod and Reel Radio urges you to try American and family-owned Land's End Charters. Land's End Charters offer their clients affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with their brand name fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a family-run business with over 50 years of experience. Go to LandsEndCharters.com to see all the current vessels and amenities available and call Cabo Greg or Jenny directly at 800-281-5778 when you're ready to get fishing. If the fish are biting, I'm on my boat, rain or shine. Of course, I wear my life jacket. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Clip it on, grab my tackle box, and hit the water. Love California. Boat California. Save California. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. H&M Landing is the most diversified sport fishing company on the West Coast. Serving the angling community since 1935, H&M Landing's name recognition and reputation for customer service is the best in the business. The H&M fleet provides the widest range of trip options and boasts the coast's largest open party fleet. For ocean fishing any time of the year, H&M Landing should be your choice for nearshore and offshore fishing. H&M is San Diego's most experienced sport fishing company, offering the best in half-day, three-quarter day, full, and multi-day trips, and a complete schedule of long-range adventures. Call today, H&M Landing, 619-222-1144, or visit their website at www.hmlanding.com for updated schedules and secure online booking. H&M Landing, the experienced angler's first choice in local and multi-day fishing since 1935. That's H&M Landing at 619-222-1144 or hmlanding.com. Quanta Fishing's got something for everybody. From the smallest angler to the oldest veteran, we can get you out there fishing with the greatest reels on the market today. From the all-new for 2016 Icon PT to the Tour Mag to the brand-new redesigned Smoke Reel, we've got something for everyone in your family. Have some fun. Take a kid fishing. They're the future of our sport. Quantum, we are performance-tuned. You can get your Quantum products at anglersarsenal.com or anglersarsenal in Mesa at 619-466-8355. Welcome back to Southern California. Wendy and I want to welcome you. We've got, uh, it's our privilege to have elite pro angler Rick Clun with us. And, and Rick, one of the, one of the questions I, I, I really been meaning to ask you, uh, you know, I, I've known of you for a long time. I've, we've seen you out here on the West Fishing, uh, uh Lake Mead, um, 
your your approach to fishing is much different uh, in many ways than a lot of the other anglers. In fact, it has even been described as a a holistic philosophy for catching bass. Uh, what's meant by that? Well, I uh, really uh, basically I think as a human as human beings. Uh, we're, un- we're fortunate but unfortunate that we live in a society that kind of encapsulates us and protects us from a lot of things that if you lived in the real jungle, uh, you wouldn't be protected from. But what that cost us is the loss of sensory abilities. Uh, you know, you look at the fish, everybody goes to the bass, is it smart? Well, intelligence well, it depends on how you define intelligence. But if intelligence is using your senses to their highest level, then it's a lot smarter than we are. Uh, because humans, as a rule, we, we are kind of, uh, kids are always asking me back when they were young, are there real zombies? And I said, yeah, they are. Basically, a zombie is something that has very little sensory abilities. And I said, and then humans, unfortunately, and especially have evolved to where we don't even taste the food we eat. We don't really smell things around us. Uh, we Our touch of feel is kind of, you know, in the, in the back seat. We don't really... My point is we're using our senses at a very low level. but So what fishing does for me was it was a vehicle to, to really take my senses to another level. And it was necessary to, to understand and all the ever-changing conditions. The most important thing as an angler is first you've got to know the science and then you've got to execute that science on the water, the science of fishing. But... But the problem with all of that is, and this is where the mental part comes in, is that that's all old data. And the most important thing beyond that for a fisherman is to be in the moment. In other words, to be responding to absolutely current conditions and current situations and, and, and feeling in, not only knowing the natural rhythms, but feeling them in, as, as they're happening. And to do that, you have to take your senses to a heightened level. Uh, you know, and, and, and in the beginning, it takes practice. And it takes continued practice because we're constantly bouncing, even as an angler, I'm bouncing in and out of that natural world back into the man-made world. And uh, so, you know, it's uh, you got to practice going from wide-angle vision to focus vision. you got to practice smelling and identifying the smells. That when you're on the water, you, your sense of feel is, even long before depth finders, was your contact to what was under the water and how your bait was working correctly or incorrectly and what was it coming over. And... Uh, and so basically, you know, I'm trying to get to clo- as close to, to those fish using their senses fully as I possibly can. And when I'm working at my highest level, I knew that was always true. And the thing that you discover when you get to that highest level is what I call 360 court awareness like a Michael Jordan would have, uh, is that you're actually, you know things before they're going to happen. And just, you know, so... And, and that fascinated me in my career. So once I really started discovering it, then I really got into a lot of things to try to understand it a lot better and to achieve it, you know, uh, and, to, and to maintain it. So what's really interesting about that is, you know, people laugh at me when I'm out there fishing and, and I and I whether it's freshwater or saltwater, and I'll sit there and I, and I can tell you whether or not I'm smelling bait or whether or not I'm smelling larger fish. You you can you can actually smell the oils from the fish when you're out there in the water. 
No, absolutely. You remember the little bass I caught in Pine Lake, the first one I landed on top of? I'll never forget the smell of that fish. And when I, if I catch a fish, and sometimes you'll just kind of, the first one of the day, you kind of smell of it, it immediately provokes that memory. And it provokes everything that surrounded that memory. And if it does that, then it's, it's provoking in me all the other situations that I have been, have and experienced where, you know, or so smell is just not smelling something. It's, prov- it's provo- provoking memories. It's provoking, you know, right. conditions and data and all of that. So, you know, it's, I know when people say, hey, you know, well, we, we all know in saltwater fishermen that they always promoted the idea of smelling the bait fish in, in some direction. There was obviously a huge school of tuna or something, you know, taking bait fish to the top and, make, and creating an oil slick and making that. So this is just all part of... Of you know the ultimate predators are do the same thing as ultimate as the prey does. They must use all their senses to their constant ability, or they don't survive. Prey are predators, right? right. And you're using your eyes. You're looking for for the birds working, or you know signs of of you know of uh, other options that the, you know that would give you a signal that the that the bass are there. And and, and I can tell you many many anglers and. Anglers don't realize that we, again, our vision tends to be tunnel vision. And, and it's, there's a thing called blind spots in fishing that I have always tried to teach people that you've got to quit doing, creating blind spots. And we do it even if you, in, in the morning, if any of you drive to, same from work to home to work to home, in the morning, look at things you don't look at. Because we are in bad habits, we're in habits. We, we look at this and we look at that and we look at this nice picture on that billboard and we look at this pretty building. But what we're doing, we're creating blind spots. Fishermen do the same thing. When they're going down the lake, they're, they're, they're passing judgment on the water. They're going, good spot, bad spot, good spot, bad spot. And we all tend to do that because we all are, are, are operating from the same science. What creates a good spot? You know, habitat, pads, broken rock. But anything that doesn't fall in that category becomes a blind spot, something you don't even see. My greatest victory is weight-wise, 1984 on, the, on, the, on Pine Bluff, Arkansas, was a blind spot. A spot that even the locals that had three generations of locals said nobody fished there, and, wow. and, they, and they don't. They ask me why I fish there, because I'm constantly trying to understand my vision and how it's working. You know, a flipper, a flipper, a guy like D. Thomas, he's he's got focus vision. He sees the minute detail of crawfish hose and the brim under the. He knows the, under the boat dock, but he doesn't see that schooling fish you were talking about behind him because he's in a focus vision. So I practice going in. I'm a caster. I tend to be more wide-angle vision uh, and less focus, but I make myself go into focus and back into wide-angle, back into focus. So these are all things, again, that you would naturally do if you... Uh, in fact, in one, of the, one of the things that brought that in Vietnam more, one of the things I constantly heard from my friends that came back from Vietnam was how horrific it was, but yet they were more alive than they'd ever been in their life. Well, we are speaking with pro angler Rick Clun. Now, Rick, let's fast forward to the uh, opening of the Bassmaster Elite Series in 2016. It's been, you know, truthfully, a little while since you've had a win. Uh, you know, you're you're on the tour. You're 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 one of the legends of the sport. How did you approach this tournament? And tell us how it progressed for you. Well, you know, it's. Again, one of the interesting studies uh, is sports and how everyone in sports 
go through these peak periods and the very best have a, a stretch usually 10, 15 years, depending on the sport, whether at their high of their, of their profession. And, of course, you know, I experienced that. But all, like all things, it, the peaks sometimes end. And, uh, and it, so, you know, and, yeah, and then you don't, you're not performing at that high level that, that you were, and then you start, a lot of things start to erode at that point, whether it's motivation. A lot of people want to blame it on age, uh, you know. But uh, to me, it's, it's life gets busy. Other, you, your priorities change. Uh, but but the thing I've known, I've known, and there is actually a, a science to why I haven't been winning, and I've known it for some time, for four or five years, and I've been trying to change it. But it's but it's very difficult to change something that's been successful. Essentially, I had to change what's been successful for me for most of my career, and to do that, it's been very difficult to do. But I've been that's basically I'm getting where I'm getting closer to making that change. I did it in the last open event of the year. Uh, at, at both shows, I mean at Table Rock this year, last year at BASS, and then I've, I've, I've stuck with that same approach at, at uh, St. John's, and hopefully I, I will be able to, you know, perform at a cons- more consistent level. But it's a completely different approach than I used the, the first part of my career. Well, tell us a little bit about what happened on on the St. John's River, because. Uh, you know, a little bit about your pre-fish, and on the first day of the event, I think you were like in 38th place, which, you know, with a, a, a 150 fishermen isn't bad, but still isn't where you want to be. Well, you know, it's, uh, the pattern was kind of unfolded for me uh, late the second day of practice and then the third day of practice, but our third day is a short day of practice. We've got to go to the meeting to find our partners for the first day. And only really had one area, and so once the tournament started, and this is a pretty typical tournament, for, you know, for tournaments. But I, I fished my primary area, and then I got a, a decent limit, and then I started. I knew I had to expand this area if I was going to survive for four days, so I started practicing and looking for this similar type water, and I found another key area which I caught my biggest fish of that day, and right at the end of the day, and had those sixteen something pounds. The third day, I. Uh, Kind of went through the same procedure again, and uh, caught a, you know, and but I, but and again, but a lot of my success was controlled by rain and wind. If I had to rain and wind, that these bass are mostly spawn mentality down there would take a brief rest from spawning and try to go into a, a little short feeding spree, and that's when I could catch the big ones. I didn't get that the second day, and so uh, I caught one big one right in the low light early in the morning, but then after that it was sunny. And then the third day, I got the conditions I needed, and I had more water by then. And uh, and the conditions, the wind switched from the south to the northeast with the front coming and cloud covering wind and rain came in. And I knew that was the ticket for these females to quit thinking about sex and get and eat a little bit. So they started feeding, and I got them all real quick in, in, that, in that little time frame. And it was similar, the fourth day was similar to the second day, that I, we didn't get that conditions except... Right off the bat in the morning, I had that condition, and fortunately, I took advantage of it and caught three big ones that gave me enough to win the event. Now, on that uh, on that faithful day where you just really crashed through the uh, the ceiling, uh, what were you fishing with, and had you changed from what you had been using earlier in the tournament, or did all of a sudden everything, as you say, just kind of click, and it was uh, you all were reading from the same page? No, I was. Pretty much 
fishing two two baits. On the sunny days, I was throwing just blind casting a a, a a black ringworm with a blue tail because they wouldn't react to my fast bait. On the, but on those little brief windows of cloud cover and or early in the morning, in when I got rain, I would go. It is a chatterbait type bait. You know, everybody nowadays. You know, I'm, I make my own version because the chatterbaits hook and and uh, uh, the way you tie onto it is will not handle the size fish I was catching. You're going to make a mistake and lose one or two, and that would cost you a tournament. But it's basically a chatterbait that I've got a better hook in and a better tie point on. And then I had a swim bait on the back of it, you know, and, and which is basically the California influence. You know, we got an eastern bait with a California swim bait on the back. And I started with a lucky strike, but I didn't have very many swim baits with me. I don't normally fish those down in Florida. And so I kind of progressed through multiple swim baits during the event. But the key was just that type of bait. It was a shad shiner type bait, which is a notorious good big bass bait in Florida. Well, now it's the last day of the tournament. You're standing in line to come to the weigh-in. You're you're waiting to get into the arena. Obviously, there's always all kinds of cheering and whooping up and everything else like that. What was going through your mind at that time? Well. You know, at that time, we still didn't really know what the other contestants had, so you're still being very conservative with your emotions because you've been down this trail too many times. Don't don't get, you know, until you have, you know, what the other guy has. <laughs> you know, it, basically everything at that point is out of your control. You know, you've done everything you can do, and you just got, you just got to be at peace with that, no matter how it turns out. Uh, the only thing that was the, the was that my son was there, and and uh, and the one thing that kept sticking in my mind was the last time I had a chance to win a BASS event. He was right there on the railing looking up, and when he when I, I'll never forget the disappointment in his face when I didn't have quite enough weight to win that tournament. So this was that was really what was on my mind. That's the biggest thing that's changed from that win to the other wins in my career is that that I, I don't win for me. And in, in my early career, it's very selfish. Yeah, you. Any great athlete, I don't care what he's doing, what he's doing is number one. Everything else is number two. Even the most important things in life that shouldn't be number two are. And But I'm at that stage where that's no longer true. Um, winning was for him and my wife and my, and my, and my family. Uh, it's not for me any longer. That my, you know, I, fishing is not number one anymore. And that's also why I probably don't perform at a level, you know, at that high level. But I still love it, and that's why I still like to do it. Hey, uh, uh, Rick, we got to take one more break. Uh, can we come back for a couple of minutes and just ask sure. you a couple more questions, let sure. you go? Okay. Hey, thank you, Rick. We are speaking with pro angler Rick Clun. He's telling us a little bit about his career and his win last week on the St. John River. Stan, he's off right now, but Wendy and I will be back after these messages. Amber Marine has been servicing boats and outboard motors for more than 30 years in the Newport Harbor area. They're a factory-authorized dealer for Tohatsu and Nissan outboards and also provide factory-authorized repair and service for all types of marine outboards. Located near the corner of 17th and Placentia Avenue, Amber Marine is at 786 Newton Way in Costa Mesa. Affordable boating and repair since 1982. 949-646-6918 and on the web at ambermarine.net. 
Kamikatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Kamikatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Kamikatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Kamikatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. If the fish are biting, I'm on my boat, rain or shine. Of course, I wear my life jacket. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Clip it on, grab my tackle box, and hit the water. Love California, boat California, save California. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. It's last call for our year-end sellathon. You know where to go. Nobody beats it's our biggest clearance of the year. Every new truck has a deeper El Cajon Ford discount. Cars, trucks, SUVs, even commercial trucks at El Cajon Ford. Now get up to 10000 off your new Fusion with 0% for 72 months. Example, ID384806. A brand new 2016 Fusion Energy, 10000 off. Total net savings, including applied 5500 Ford rebate and 4500 El Cajon Ford discount from MSRP. 0% annual percentage rate financing for 72 months, $1,389 per thousand financed, or take $12,000 off all in stock new 2016 F-150 XL Super Cabs. Total net savings include applied $6,550 Ford rebate and $5,450 El Cone Ford discount from MSRP. All savings on approved credit through 1317 at Broadway and East Main and ElCajonFord.com. H&M Landing is the most diversified sport fishing company on the West Coast. Serving the angling community since 1935, H&M Landing's name recognition and reputation for customer service is the best in the business. The H&M fleet provides the widest range of trip options and boasts the coast's largest open party fleet. For ocean fishing any time of the year, H&M Landing should be your choice for nearshore and offshore fishing. H&M is San Diego's most experienced sport fishing company, offering the best in half-day, three-quarter day, full, and multi-day trips, and a complete schedule of long-range adventures. Call today, HM Landing, 619-222-1144, or visit their website at www.hmlanding.com for updated schedules and secure online booking. H&M Landing, the experienced angler's first choice in local and multi-day fishing since 1935. That's H&M Landing at 619-222-1144 or Wendy and I, we do want to welcome you back to Rodrio Radio. We are speaking with PASS Elite Pro Angler. Season's Rick Clon and, and Rick, uh, that must have been a fantastic reality. feeling well, that uh, after going, you know, for a fairly long time without a win, all of a sudden you're up them. there in the winner's circle and your son and your wife, it must have given you great satisfaction because they've got to be your biggest fans. At cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. If the fish are biting, I'm on my boat, rain or shine. Of course, I wear my life jacket. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Clip it on, grab my tackle box, and hit the water. Love California, boat California, save California. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. And they just landed, and so I'm stalling. And Bass is saying, you need to put your fish in. And I kept getting all these other guys, hey, talk longer this time when you get on stage, because they're trying to get from the airport to there. And they got there with just like 10 minutes left before I have to weigh in. So, yeah, that 
31 pounds and all, if, he had, if they hadn't <laughs> made it, he hadn't got to help me, I would have been very, very disappointed. So that was definitely what it was about with me. What a great moment to share. Now, now tell us, after this win, has your phone been ringing? And maybe you've heard from some people you haven't heard from in a little while? Well, this is my first social media win, like I said earlier. And, yes, the phone has been ringing, but the phone used to because that was the only form of media there was. But now it's the Facebook going off the wall and emails going off the wall and Messenger going off the wall. Yeah, they're they're taking advantage of every contact method that's available, and it's it's amazing. I've I heard a stat brought up by one of my sponsors that I might have gotten more coverage in this win than all my other wins put together, I, due to the social media effect of it. I can see that. Hey, I I I've just got a, a note to talk about social media. Uh, you happened to mention that uh, one of the keys to this win was this change in your general approach. And I, I don't want you to give away the whole philosophy, but uh, what exactly did that mean? Well, what it means is you'd have to know that my whole career, but I'll tell you very briefly. My whole career and my early success was based on the ability to get 40, 50 bites a day. I came from Texas, which was a 15-fish limit, Okay. Uh, all of our earlier tournaments were 10 fish, 7 fish limits, not 5. And and then I went into guiding to, to have something to do in between, and so that meant I had customers I had to put on 40, 50 bites a day. So I became an, an expert. I mean, I knew how to do that. But that's just 2-pound fish. You don't do that with 40. You don't get 40, 50 bites a day every day with big fish. So I basically became a master at 2-pounders. Nowadays, I can weigh a limit of two pounders every single day of every tournament in, in the elite division, and I will not be in the top 50 at the end of the year. And I've known this that that was what was hurting me for a long time, but to, essentially what that means in practice now, i got to give up 30 bites per day in practice. Give them up, okay? That means i got to give up the techniques I know that will produce those bites. And those are fun bites. Take away the business of it. I like to catch fish. They're sure. fun, but i got to give them up now. And so, but it, it's taken me two or three years really to develop a mental discipline and it would encourage to do that. Now you're, it's kind of like the, D. Thomas was the first one who showed us that technique, that mental method. In other words, flipping was a technique that he didn't care if you got 25 bites a day on a small crankbait because he was looking for five to eight bites a day with his technique was going to be the right fish. And that's kind of the way fishing is now. You've got to have that what I call the old flipping mentality. You've got to be willing to throw big baits, and you're not going to get as many bites, but when you do get one, it'll be the right fish. You know, and you're fishing against a field of competitors where I've got a hazard to say the fishermen that are coming aboard now are a lot better than maybe the fishermen that started off in the, in, in the 80s and stuff like that. It's tough. No, they're not. You don't think so? No, absolutely not. Because the one talent that they, now if you just looked at it from mechanics and knowledge of techniques, uh, yes, I agree with you. But if you looked at it from their ability to locate fish on their own, no, they're not as good as the ones in the past. Wow. That's a profound statement. Because, again, that's that's the effect of social media. Nowadays, there's so much networking and there's so much quality information. Don't get me wrong. The old guys try to get information from other people, too, but it wasn't there. Now it is. In the old days, you'd go to a lake, and there might be one or two guys that really knew how to fish tournaments on that lake. 
Nowadays, there's 50 to 100 that can tell you that. And so, unfortunately for these young anglers, they are being forced to use that to some degree, and, and they're using it, and they're not being, they're not cheating or nothing. They're staying within the rules, but what that steals from them is their own ability to locate fish on their own. And right now, the only time they have to do that now is when you get a catastrophic event in the lake. Or on a lake like Lake Mead, and you'll see the guys that know how to locate fish there, because that's a, such a neutral lake. Yeah, there's no information that can help you on that lake. But, uh, but that's, that's kind of, yeah, in some ways they are better, but in some ways they're, they're not. Well, speaking of Lake Mead, you've had great success out here in the West, and especially on Lake Mead with the uh, uh, One Bass Open uh, in 1983 and 1986. You won that. You, you've always done well in that event. Are, are we going to get an opportunity to see you out here in the West uh, uh, fishing an Open or, or <laughs> even with the Elite Series? I love the West. I mean, it's been really good to me. I mean, I won the, uh, my first $100,000 check was in the Redman All-American at Lake Havasu. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you mentioned the Lake Mead deals, and there's no more beautiful lake on the planet to me than Lake Plow, Lake Powell. And uh, so, I, yeah, and probably my, my, my family, if you ask them what's their favorite tournament, it's the U.S. Open. And uh, But... I'm fighting fight every year with conflicts of schedule to, to, to fish it. You know, in the last several years, the, the the open is kind of strange, and it's a it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday tournament. Yeah, and that really throws a wrench into being able to fish it if you have any other tournaments that month. And so I just have to wait until we get a time frame where I don't have that, and or I'll be there. Right. Uh, one of the reasons uh, why it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is uh, Colville Bay being open to the public and boating and launching and houseboats and everything like that. They don't want the congestion of the U.S. Open being there during the weekend, so the Open has evolved to a, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday event to, uh, as a compromise with the, um, uh, with the landing and, and uh, uh, the tournament. So, and then, you know, back uh, in the day, the, uh, the tournament was in the hottest part of the uh, – uh, the summer and in uh, in July and even when Harvey Naslin came on back uh, here a few years ago to run it had it right after the um, uh, uh, the uh, the big eye cast event and you'd go right to that event and a lot of people were going man it is just way too hot can you have it at another time of the year so it, it's moved back to September so it's just that's a great time of the year September yeah but I always I think I, though that's what I loved about the open it's anytime I wanted to see if if you still really loved what you did go out and fish the open in July and August and if you still loved it then you'd know you'd forget the answer right there <laughs> Rick before we let you go the sponsors that have helped get you to where you are today well, I, I don't have, you know, it surprises people, but I don't have the, the, the amount of sponsors that a lot of guys do. I basically have been with Bass Pro Shop and Tractor Marine uh, Nitro Boats my, pretty much the last two-thirds of my career. And then Lucky Strike and, uh, is probably my only lure company that I've been with for the last 25 years. And then one of my all-time favorites is actually a California Coast company, Lobina Lures, who makes the Ricos out there in, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So... And that's really been it, and I, 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 like, I like that because I can do them justice. I used to kid Woo Days all the time, the reason he was so big and fat, so he could put more sponsor patches on his shirt. 
Because he had bigger shirts, you know. So, but no, I, I tend, tend to crack They're great sponsors, but I keep them small. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough. Is it your plan now uh, to fish all of the elite tournaments uh, this year again? Yeah, I, I've always fished all the elites, and I usually fish one division of the opens. I don't fish the only ones I don't fish anymore are the FLWs. Uh, you know, again, it's due to the family. Yeah, my priority there has changed. And FLWs is really good to me. I almost made a million dollars there in about five years of fishing them. So, but uh, it's just it it's just, it's just time to cut back and get down to you know, fourteen, fifteen events a year at the most. Well, you know, it, it's great to know at this point in time, you're number one in points for Angler of the Year. You're number one for qualifying to go to the. 2017 Bassmaster Classic. Uh, uh, you're on top of the pile right now. I hope you stay that way for the rest of the season, and we have an opportunity to talk to you again during the course of the year and congratulate you on your great fishing. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Chris Randall from Cheap Sports Fishing. And Captain Chris, tell us about what's happening on the Chief now that the tuna season is upon us. It's here, and it's time to go on the Chief. For those that are not familiar with the vessel, she's an 85 by 24 deluxe sport fisher that offers a wide variety of open party trips, ranging from one to five days in length. We're also available for private group charters. The Chief's onboard anemones include a fully remodeled galley with comfortable seating for 25, twin flat screen TVs with hundreds of movies, Two roomy indoor heads with fresh hot water showers, stateroom and open berthing areas, an impressively large deck area, 200 scoop bait capacity. We have twin six ton spray brine fish holds to keep your catch fresh, and our professional courteous crew will go the extra mile to make your trip a memorable hey, welcome one. Welcome back to the to show. Well, we've done a tour of, to uh, the landings, talked a lot of the skippers over there. We've talked about it. There's a lot of you that just can't go out and do that. You can also follow us on Facebook. The and best at fresh our local fish can, obviously. Catalina Offshore Products, and we're with our good Every friend Tommy Gomes over here at Catalina Offshore Comics. Been a little while since we've had you on the radio. Hi. To make them light I'm cracking up. Strong, but did you just tell your listeners that a lot of them can't catch fish? Yeah, I'm one of them. You can't go out. No, it's been a while since I've been on the show. Things are great. Catalina's still rocking and rolling. And the retail program that we got is really 
nice, and we're right in the middle of lobster season. The hoop netters are out there doing it too, and looking like everything's producing as it should be. You know, you were always talking about the availability of good seafood, seafood that you can, you know, go back and find out where it came from to make sure that it's the real deal. How are we doing on quality seafood right now? Well, you know, I, I always like to tell people, you know, know your source, ask questions. It's kind of like the old days are coming back around where we used to have a butcher. We would go to the butcher and we would get our meat and we would, you know, we'd, we'd go to our shoe guy to get our shoes fixed. And we go to our suit guy and we get our suits done just like uh, women go and they get their seamstress to, you know, bring their hemline up or whatever it is. And now you have to trust your fishmonger and know your source. And these are important because there's so much seafood that's consumed in this country that is not inspected by the FDA. And so our food is is starting to change back to the more wholesome farm-to-market, dock-to-plate type thing. Well, you know, I noticed, too, you're on uh, Facebook and YouTube a lot. And you have the opportunity to bring in a lot of the new chefs, especially those here from San Diego that are up and coming or those that are established. And I think the common theme is making the fish good, but making it as natural as you can and, and not adding a lot so much to it that you're, you're a- actually masking the fish because of some spice or coating or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, good fish is not cheap, and cheap fish is not good. And when you get good, solid, fresh seafood, you don't need a lot of spices. You need a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, a little bit of butter, and some lemon, and call it good. You don't need to cover it in a fancy sauce and, you know, all of that. And if you burn it, you just cover it in some Cajun spice and call it French Cajun and serve it with red beans and rice, and no one will know. But uh, good seafood is something that you just cook very lightly, quick and easy, fresh seafood. You know, frozen seafood, that's a little different. Sometimes you get a little freezer burn. You want to try and mask that or you want to try and shave it off with your fillet knife and trim around it. And and you just want to learn how to take care of your seafood. So I, I want to put it to you this way for your listeners. So all the sport fishing boats now, I, I, I think 90, let's say 95%. Uh, all have RSW systems, and they're bleeding your fish, and they're taking great quality care and precision care of that catch for you because they want you to bring home the best quality product. So they vacuum pack it. They fillet it at five-star or fisherman's processing or wherever it is that you go. Now it's up to you to keep that fish cold and frozen, and you don't want it to defrost. You don't want it to get warmer so that the temperature changes and that's what happens when you get good quality fish you bring that home you get a great quality meal so i want you to think about that when you're out in your own boat you want to bring in good quality seafood you want to take care of the temperature you want to vacuum pack it you want to get everything the way the best that you can so that when you do get it in your freezer and you pull it out to defrost, you get a good quality product. It's not like it used to be. Fuel is expensive. We're running longer trips. And, you know, those fish have tails. They're here one day, they're gone the next, and you got to go find them. Uh, 
So, yeah, take care of your catch, know your source, ask questions. And, you know, you mentioned YouTube earlier. There's a plethora of videos out there on how to take care of seafood and what to look for and stuff like that. And I suggest people start doing that and know what you're eating. Well, let's talk Let's talk a little bit, and I don't want to get, you know, super into it because I know you can spend an hour on it. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people say, well, Tommy, I'm, I am uh, uh, eating really well. I'm going to my... Uh, local chain store and i'm finding some great tilapia there and it's uh, farm raised and i'm thinking man i'm uh i'm you know i'm not going out and killing a cow that's uh destroying the ozone layer because of uh, flatulism uh uh what's what's the story uh, on on what's happening here with a lot of this farm raised stuff because i i know you're not necessarily a proponent of it, uh, you, you're, as you say, you have to know where your food comes from. Tell us, talk to a little bit. Yeah, about that. so not all farmed fish is bad. Not all of it is good. Me personally, I like to look at the country of origin: China, Indonesia, uh, Sri Lanka, South Africa. Those are places that I would not want to buy farmed fish from. Also, you know, I like to explain it like this, John. I'm 55 years old, and my generation was the first generation of a TV dinner. The Hungry Man TV dinner came in aluminum trays and aluminum top and all that. Had the I think the only thing that was any good was a crunchy brownie. And there's a lot of guys right now shaking their head going, <laughs> I remember those. But since then, our food's gone downhill. And we're now just starting to see a change in our food to get back into it. Um, believe it or not, in San Diego, we have what we call food deserts in this city. National City is one of them. There's plenty of fast food joints, but there's really no supermarkets down there. Um, And then back to the farmed fish, no matter how you slice it, it's here to stay. We have to feed our masses of this planet. And our fish is being, on a commercial level, and this is from a guy who was on Tuna Saners for 20 years. Um, We've gone too big, too fast, too soon. Our boats are too big. They're too effective. Our electronics are too effective. You don't need traditional old-school fishermen with binoculars in hand looking for fish. You've got all the high-tech sonars and stuff like that. So technology has given way and has made us uh, has allowed us to produce more seafood in massive, massive tonnage. That drives a global market. So the one thing that I can tell you about farmed fish is this, is you need to do your homework. So if you read the label of what's in your dog and cat food, but you don't read the label of what you're feeding your kids, so there's something wrong there. I mean, it's okay to love your dog more than you love your kids. I, I'm totally with you on that. But is, it, is the thing on what they're feeding the fish in order to get them to a size to go to market is that the conditions uh, that those fish are living in that maybe make them hazard or is it what happens to the fish between the time it comes out of the water and at time it's it's frozen and put in a package or is actually served onto your plate or is it just a combination of everything it's a combination of everything that unloads unlocks the the padlock you know the fish that if they're grown in pens and the pens are in circular shape. The fish are always moving in one direction, kind of like that movie Midnight Train where the guy got thrown in that, 
Afghani prison or Turkish prison, they're all moving into one thing and they're all rubbing up against each other and they're removing the protective coating uh, or slime, if you will. And then, of course, when that happens, they get lesions and now we've got to pump antibiotics into their food. And so we're pumping the fish full of antibiotics in order for those lesions to heal up. And then we're harvesting that and then we're shipping that stuff up to the states uh, into our big box stores and things like that. And and what, what are they really feeding these farmed fish, uh, beef, chicken, and pork byproducts for sure. Okay, soy products for sure. Is it a GMO soy? Probably. So, for those of us that have spent time on long range boats or big commercial tuna fishing boats or big commercial draggers and stuff, I've seen tuna eat birds, I've seen shark eat birds, I've seen swordfish and marlin come out of the water and eat a bird. Okay, so we'll give that to them, we'll give them the chicken. But I've never seen a fish eat a pig or a cow. I've seen them eat rib bones because you're skipping them across the water like a flying fish on a hand line. But I've never seen them actually go manjati style on a pork loin, you know. But yet they're feeding some of these fish pork byproducts. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Catalina uh, offshore products. Uh, um, I've seen this uh, operation grow, especially the retail end of the operation. Uh, used to be you could come in, say hello to you. You go in the back, uh, you find a fresh fish, bring it on out, fillet it for us, and wrap it on up, and we'd go out the door. It's changed a lot, but tell us about the scrutiny that the products that you find at Catalina Offshore Products go through. Because I know you take uh, your personal pride and state your personal reputation on the products that are on the other side of the counter here. Yeah, the last... The last, uh, I'm like Inspector Five, you know, and you used to get the blue jeans, Levi's. And Here, let me always, check your tag. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, and it's not made in Sri Lanka either. <laughs> no, I'm Inspector Five. Um, I'm the last line of defense for that fish before it comes into the retail restaurant program. So if there is an issue with it, uh, it, it ultimately falls on me because I let it pass. And I'm okay with that. Um, but then again, you know, every fish is different. You know, you can have 10 fish on the table and only no, only one is a number one. And that leaves you nine. And out of that nine, there can only be a, a number one. And so you have to work your way down and, and figure out the quality. But quality control is a big thing here at Catalina Offshore. You know, we do have lower grade qualities, but our lower grade quality is usually better than what you'll find in a supermarket or a big box store. All right. You know, we talk about Catalina Offshore products and people think about just, you know, some of the finest seafood around. But you have really taken Catalina Offshore and you've evolved it into an education center and then also a showcase for young cooking talent, young chefs that are coming up in the world and even some of the more established chefs that are here exposing people to their products, how to cook the products well, and then their businesses too. So you've really branched out from just being a, a fishmonger. Well, again, you have to know your source, and there was a niche that was missing. You know, seafood isn't something that they're going to teach you in a culinary school. It's not that way. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of different species of fish out there. Uh, every cow skeleton is the same. Every goat skeleton is the same. Every pig skeleton is the same. Fish are not like that. You break down each species of fish differently. They're like a puzzle, and you need to utilize that whole fish. Fish doesn't come out of the ocean in a box. 
It comes out of the ocean alive and kicking. And we need to teach these young chefs and some of the old ones, we need to rethink them, have them rethink the program on how to break down the fish, how to use the collar, how to use the skin of salmon, how to, how to make all these different dishes rather than just that, what I call cops, the center of plate. You know, and I think that's really been a big awakening for me in, in all the years that I've known you. Most of us have just thought about a fish. You take a nice fillet, something that's off the shoulders, and you cook it, and that's great. But you've actually exposed us to using a lot more of the fish as a, a culinary treat than uh, I think, you know, we ever realized just, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, well, we lost touch with our food in this country. We got everything fast. Everything's faster. Everything's larger. And everything's super cheap. We need to get back into our roots and get back into our food and eat healthier. And we wouldn't have half the problems that we have now if we were just eating more healthier instead of, you know, always being in a rush. We're, we're in such the, the now generation uh, the now century, even, you know, we want everything right now, right away. Fast food, fast cars, fast women. No. <laughs> no, I'm too old for that. Yeah, yeah no. That was uh, then, this is now. <laughs> yeah. But you understand what I'm saying is that we need to re- we need to get back to our food, our real true food. And we need to we need to go to farmers markets and we open this seafood educational nutritional center here at Catalina and Parents are bringing their kids in, and the kids would never eat fish, and I would cook them a piece of simple fish, and they love it. And now we got kids that are coming here. They've been coming here for six, seven, eight years, some of them, that are coming here with their little brothers or their little sisters eating fish, and they get, you know... They get, if we've got stuff for kids all the time from Scripps Institution of Oceanography, whether it's posters or cartoon coloring books, or we just want this to be a place where people can come and get good, solid seafood that we buy locally. It's not cheap, but it's not super expensive either. You've been involved in a lot of breakthrough projects when it comes to cooking and culinary uh, talents, but I, the the one project you've been involved in that's really a breakthrough product is the Collaboration Kitchen. Tell us a little bit on what that <laughs> is and how it's been going. Yeah, Collaboration Kitchen started off as a, I wanted to do cooking classes and I kept bugging Dave, you know, do cooking classes, do cooking classes. Finally, we were in a meeting with consultants. Uh, I hate consultants. No. <laughs> you know, you pay them way too much. Yeah, they always got something to say and then they leave. Yeah. Where are you the rest of the time? And you don't time. follow the advice. Yeah, no. Um, well, finally, one day they said, okay, you got six days to do a collaboration c- cooking class. And I thought to myself, okay, so I called a bunch of my buddies. I called a bunch of food writers. I called all my friends. I think I had 30 people. And we did a cooking class. And then we did another one. And then they did another one. Well, Seven, eight years later, now we're doing Collaboration Kitchen. We sell 120 tickets. It usually sells out within two days. Um, and I donate all the money to a, a kids group of whoever. Like this one here, there's a kids uh, under 18 homeless shelter in San Diego. And my culinary director requested the money go to them. So they'll be in the house and... The great thing about Collaboration Kitchen is you buy tickets on Facebook through Brown Paper Ticket. That's the only way to get it. I'm sorry. That's just the way it's set up. But you actually see your money being donated. 
right there at the event. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on how much we raise, could be anywhere between three and five grand. Boom, here you go. All right. Well, Tommy, we can keep on talking to you for hours because of all the things that you do. We haven't even, uh, you know, broached uh, uni butter. Uni butter, yeah, <laughs> the, the thing that made you famous, right? Yeah, it's still going. You know, we're, we're still making it. I, I don't know. I'm looking for. A, I'm looking for a la- somebody to put the labels on because, as you know, I lost my dad, and, and he used to put the labels on and, and uh, fill the bottles. For me and Jim, we'd sit at the butter house, and, and the old man would sit there and just turn the ball valve, and we'd fill the bottles one at a time. And, you know, so I'll be looking for They get free butter. That's what you get, and maybe some free stuff at Fred Hall. I ain't paying nobody. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I don't know if I'd recognize a bottle of uni butter that had a straight label. There's no straight labels. <laughs> Tommy, people want to find out more about Catalina Offshore Products, some of the things you're doing. Uh, where can they go uh, that uh, instead of giving you a call on the phone, where can they go to review some of the things that are happening? You know, you can always go to my Facebook page, Tommy Gomes. You can go to Tommy the Fishmonger on Facebook. Of course, Catalina Offshore Products has a Facebook page. And you can also go to www.catalinaop.com for our website. Uh, you can order fish on there and have it shipped anywhere in the in uh, California. Yeah, anywhere in California for twenty bucks. And so, if you want to send, the holidays are coming up. If you want to send fish uh, to somebody in the Midwest or back east instead of that stinky cheese box and crackers, send them some nice fresh California seafood, and we can get it to them. You order one day, we'll have it to them on the next day. Uh, and what a treat it is. It's yeah, better it's than cool. oranges or avocados or whatever it yeah. is. You know, it, it, just a couple of last things before we go, because I know we've gone way over time over here. Uh, number one, we got to thank Dave Rudy for giving you the reins to, to do this type of stuff. I mean, uh, this is far <laughs> and beyond, I think, what he had envisioned at the time. I think he, I think he was hoping I just completely failed so he could fire me and never have to deal with me again. <laughs> and last thing, uh, again, uh, uh, we all send our condolences on the passing of your dad. I know that was a big loss to you and your family, uh, but uh, uh, his memory lives on in, in his prodigy and his children and and the things that he taught you and now that you're trying to pass on to other people. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I appreciate that. He, he was a good dude, good fisherman. All right. Yeah. Hey, Tommy Gomes, thanks a lot for being with us. Uh, we're going to check in with you from time to time to find out what's fresh, what's happening out there yeah. in the seafood world. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Anytime, John. Thank you all. Bye-bye. All right. Papa Bing, I've stopped by your place a time or two lately, and you aren't home either. Well, I'm a busy man, Louie. I got a lot of big deals cooking. I was probably tied up at the studio. You weren't tied up, you dog. You was just playing old gone fishing. There's a sign upon your door. Pops, don't blab it around, will you? Gone fishing. Keep it shady. I got me a big one staked out. You ain't working anymore. I don't have to work. I got me a piece of Gary. Cows need milking in the barn. I have the twins on that. They tell each take a side. But you just don't give a darn. Give them four bits of cow and hand lotion. You just never seem to learn. Man, you taught me. 
Well, everyone, that's it for tonight. We appreciate you stopping by to be with us. We hope your holiday has gone well. Thank you very much for letting us be a part of it. Now, next week, New Year's Day, we will have a recorded show, but I think we're going to make it worth your while. It's all new guests. We're going to have writer George Kramer with us. We're going to have bass fishing legend. Jimmy Houston have a, almost a 30-minute interview with him. You're going to want to hear it from Jimmy. We're going to have Shaw Grigsby. We're going to have a lot of other special guests from uh, interviews we did at the Anglers Marine Show at the end of November. So you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Also, a special guest, Frank Rossetti is going to be with us. And we're going to remember some of those fishermen that we lost back in 2016 that really meant so much to the fishing industry here in Southern California. So again, on behalf of Stan, Wendy, Jorge, our engineer in the AM540 studios, Ben Harvey, our local engineer, and always in memory of Big Tuna Bill and Eddie McEwen, thank you everyone for being with us here in 2016. We wish you a great holiday. We look forward to being with you again and being a part of your weekly schedule every Sunday night here at Ron Real Radio. So until then, go out there and get them. They're getting away. We'll see you on the water. We're out for now.